Morning. Okay, uh, we finished the book of Matthew last week, but we are going to do a couple supplemental messages for that book, and the reason being, uh, Matthew's really a kingdom gospel, and it doesn't do a lot of, the, uh, of explaining about, you know, the plan of salvation and things like that. Uh, so we're going to do a few supplemental messages before we jump into the Old Testament, because we're going to be uh, in First Kings here in a few weeks. So we're going to do a few, uh, I think, really important supplemental messages. Uh, and today, the one we're going to cover is How to Get to Heaven is the title of the message. Uh, it's just about salvation. When I use the word salvation, I mean when you have trusted Christ for your eternal life and guaranteed to be in heaven. That's basically salvation in a nutshell, okay? So I think it's important because one of the most I mean, amazing things God ever gave us was this plan of salvation. I mean, it, it's amazing, and, and his plan isn't based on our worthiness. Aren't you glad? It's, just <laughs> it's not based on our worthiness. It's based on his love and his grace and our faith. Right? And contrary to a lot of popular belief, this plan is also very simple. Okay? It's very simple. Sometimes I think we forget that God wants us in heaven. Okay? It's not like he's saying, uh, oh, let me see if I can find a way for you to intrude on my party. That's not what he's saying. He's, he wants us to be in heaven with him. So it's amazing, amazingly simple. And, you know, Jesus described time and time again, and we're going to see so many of those today, how simple it was to go to heaven. Uh, John 6.47 is an example of that. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who what? Believes, believes has what? Eternal. Has eternal life. Now, how simple is that? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. The problem is, sadly, religion and the religious have complicated the plan of salvation. You know what I'm talking about? And, I mean, they've done it in two basic ways. Through self-righteousness that exists in mankind. How many people have ever ran into someone self-righteous? Yeah, I can introduce you to a few before you leave. Anyway, self-righteousness is one of those ways, and the other way is denomination. Okay, those are the, those are the two ways that, that religion and the religious confuse an otherwise simple plan. See, denominations are not a biblical concept. Denominations are basically the fingers on the hands of religion. Okay, they're not a biblical concept. And self-righteousness, to me, is just man living in a state of constant spiritual self-delusion. Okay, because no one is righteous in and of themselves. So it's, it's a ridiculous concept. So here's the thing we have to remember. Salvation is about God making a way for mankind to escape judgment. Okay, and that plan is initiated by God, and God sets the terms. He and he alone set those terms. And the reason I say that is religion tries to redefine those terms. I mean, time and time again, they try to do that, right? Religion adds things like regulations and rules and, I mean, bylaws. Have you ever, have you ever been in a church that has so many rules that you don't have time to think about the Bible because you're so worried about keeping all the rules they've laid down, right? That's what religion does, right? So listen, fortunately, we don't have to worry about this because neither one of them are involved, you know, in having eternal life. Just, it's not something we have to worry about. No matter what the religious teach, no matter what ceremonies they tell you you have to do, no matter what, you know, old traditions, it's not what God taught us, okay? None of those things, none of those things are going to get in the way of salvation. So today I want to look at kind of the basics. I just want to get back to the basics and explain what God intended for us to know about salvation. And I'm only going to look at what the scripture teaches on it. Okay, we're going to leave religion and, and we're going to leave denomination on the shelf. I don't care what they think about it. We're just going to talk about what the Bible says about it. Okay, so let's, let's jump right in. We're going to 
We're going to do some jumping, though. Here's the deal. The plan of salvation actually started at creation. And believe it or not, the plan of salvation began with the Garden of Eden. And that's where Adam and Eve were. How many people have heard of that? Okay, we're ahead on that then. Good. Right? That's where Adam and Eve were. and, And it continued through the law all the way into the cross. Okay, so it's important we understand some of those things. Because the Garden, you know, where Adam and Eve were in the law of Moses, actually help us understand salvation. Because here's... This has always bothered me, but a lot of people think that the Garden of Eden was a failure. And so God had to come up with something else because that didn't work. Sometimes I forget, I think they forget they're talking about God, right? But they think the Garden of Eden didn't work, so that failed, so he gave us the law, and, and that failed. So since the first two didn't work, as a last resort, third time's a charm, let's send Jesus. Okay, sometimes people actually think that way, and I've had people ask me that, that's one of the most asked questions I deal with is, well, why didn't the garden work? Why didn't the law work? And so I want to make sure I explain that because this was all a part of his plan, okay? Now, the events in the garden, we're going to take a look at both of these, but the events in the garden uh, were designed to reveal the depravity of man. Depravity just means we are utterly sinful, and that's the best we're ever going to be. Okay, now a lot of people get offended by that, but those are delusional people because if you're honest with you, with yourself, you know you're sinful. And I think that comes out. What happens when somebody cuts you off in traffic? Right? Do your, does your righteousness rise to the top then? Is that what happens? When someone hurts your feelings, does your righteousness rise to the top? When someone hurts your children? Yeah, listen, everybody's going, oh, it's on now. That ain't about church. Right? It's not your righteousness that comes to the top when those things happen. When those things happen... That sinful nature starts to rear its ugly head. Okay, so let's talk about the garden first. Now remember, this is a perfect paradise. God created man, and he put him in this perfect paradise, and then he created a woman named Eve, and the man's name was Adam. And uh, he puts him in this perfect paradise, right? Now, I mean, it was actually a a really good deal, because all they had to do was eat, sleep, do a little garden tending, and procreate. I mean... I've heard of worse plans. You know, (laughs) eat, sleep, and procreate. Sign me up. Anyway, so he puts them in there with this pretty simple plan, and he didn't give them a bunch of rules. He didn't give them a bunch of stipulations. He didn't give them a bunch of regulations. He just puts them in there, and he says, listen, I only have one rule. Look at this, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, "The the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. Uh, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat from it, you will surely what? You will surely die. Okay, so let's look at what he has to do. Okay, it's still pretty simple, right? He has to eat, sleep, tend a garden, procreate, and don't eat from that tree. I mean, that, that's, that's the plan up to this point. You would think that'd be a pretty good one, right? That's the plan up to this point. There was only one thing they could even mess up, and that was don't eat from that tree. That's the only thing they could mess up, and what do they do? They ate from the tree. They messed that very thing up. Look at this, Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Has the devil ever talked to you like that? Or one of, you know what I mean? Are you sure this would really be bad? I mean, 
I don't think God would be upset. After all, he understands. Have you ever had that conversation in your mind? Okay, this is what's going on here, right? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, the woman said to the serpent, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Okay, doing good so far. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will what? Not die. See, the devil loves to take the word of God and just inject one word sometimes. You know, just inject one concept to confuse us. He says, you surely will not die. Now listen. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Now that is true. See, he always mixes a little truth with a lie. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Now, here, in my opinion, is the first sin, actually. All right, look at this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made what? Made themselves loin coverings. Okay? Now, in my opinion, the first sin that really took place was when mankind coveted the power of God. That's the first sin. That was before they ever took of the fruit. The moment that the woman said, hmm, so God's holding out on me. You know what it is? Is he just wants to be the boss. He doesn't want to let me have a say in anything. When I eat of that, we're on the same playing field. You know what? I'm going to teach him. That, there's the first sin, right? And the guy's sitting there going, <laughs> you know? And she, and she, the guy's going, <laughs> she's naked, you know? And she just goes, here, eat this. All right. You know? So he's not innocent either because he was dumb. Okay. Right? Now, so this was, this was the fall of mankind. Right now, did you notice something? A lot of people miss this, that after Adam and Eve sinned, came the birth of religion. Did you notice that? Let me explain that to you, right? Because as soon as they ate from this forbidden tree, their eyes were open. Right? Up until that point, they didn't know shame, they didn't know guilt, because they they hadn't sinned yet. Now, people make the mistake often of saying Adam and Eve were created perfect. They were not created perfect, they were created without sin. Okay? Perfect would be they could not sin. There was only one perfect person that ever came upon this earth, right? Jesus. So they were sinless until they sinned. That's all that means, right? But as soon as they ate, as soon as their eyes were opened, as soon as they felt this shame and this guilt, which was something they had never felt before, as soon as all that happened to them, they made themselves coverings. They made loincloths, coverings, right? So religion was born the moment... They tried to cover their sin themselves. Okay, this was an attempt for them to cover their own sin. By making these coverings, they thought that they were going to hide their sin from each other and from God. Right? That's what they thought they were doing here. And that's what religion does. Religion tells us that all these ridiculous rules and regulations and bylaws and ceremonies, that if we do those things, it will cover our sin. It's equal to this this 
loincloth, if you will, except it wasn't cloth, this covering was made for them. It's, it's the same thing. They were trying to cover up the fact that they'd sinned. And religion tries to cover up the fact that we sinned. You see what I mean? This is where religion was born. Because the only way to cover up sin is to give it to God. That is the only way. And if they were really concerned about having their sin covered up, they should have immediately said, Lord, we transgressed, we sinned, we did what you told us not to do, forgive us. But no, they thought, well, you know what? The problem here I see is that we're both naked. So let's just make something to cover ourselves up, you know, everything's going to be okay. That was the birth of religion. Okay, now, something else was born after religion was born. So we have sin, the birth of religion, and then passing the buck was born. You want to know where that started? It started here. Let's take a look at this. Genesis 3, 8. And it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They tried to hide from God. Not the sharpest tools in the shed. Okay? Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and, and said to him, where are you? Now understand something. God knew where he was hiding. He wasn't, wasn't like God's going, what happened? Where'd they go? That's not what he was saying. When he was calling out, where are you? It was more than just where are you hiding. It's what is your condition. Okay? Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, this being God, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave from the tree and I ate. Do you see how he passed the buck? You see this in the nursery. This is, our, this is who we are, right? At our, at our rudimentary form, this is who we are. You go into the nursery, who broke that? There'll be 20 little fingers pointing at somebody else, right? So he says, how do you know that you're naked? Who told you? Did you eat from that tree? And he says, well... You gave her to me, and she ate, and gave it to me, and I ate it, because she's naked, and she gave me something. No, I'm just kidding. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is another way of putting it back on God. Listen, who made the serpent? Mm-hmm. And it told me to eat. So that's really you, right? So that's where passing... The buck came from because notice how quickly they passed the buck, how quick they were to not accept responsibility for their actions. It was it was immediate. They started playing the blame game. Right. But here again, the blame game and passing the buck doesn't deal with the problem we have in our lives. The problem we have in our life and the problem they had in their life was sin. There was sin that had been committed and it had to be atoned for. And here's what a lot of people miss. God actually, because they sinned, God actually offered the first blood sacrifice ever offered. Did you know that? Look at this, Galatians 3.21. The Lord God made garments of what? Of skin. Now, I don't, I've never seen a tree that grows that. Right? Something had to die. He had to take the life of something to give them the skin to cover themselves. The Lord God made them garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay, so there's a lot more we could talk about here, but I got to move quicker. But so the Garden of Eden didn't fail. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It proved that man or mankind, humanity, is incapable of righteousness apart from God. Even if there's only one sin to commit, we will commit it. 
And I know a lot of people say, well, if I was there, I would have, you would have done the same thing. Okay, they were the representatives of all mankind, and if you were there, you would have done the exact same thing, okay? The garden proved to us that even in the most basest of, of situations, man will choose to sin. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Now let's talk about the law, okay? Because the law basically was just a list of requirements for righteousness. God gave Moses this list of requirements. He said, write them down, okay? Write them down. Here's what you have to do to be considered righteous. There were over 300 laws, okay? And the Jews added more, right? I mean, it got, it got pretty complicated, but he was saying, listen, if you can do all of these things that are written down for you, you'll be considered righteous, righteous enough for heaven. We're talking a list. How many of you are list people? How many of you draw li- like make lists for everything? I do it not because, you know, I'm efficient, but because I forget everything. If I don't have a list, I'll forget it. Right? Okay, here's a list. You'd think that would be simple enough. They have to read what's on the list and do it, but they couldn't, right? So the law was successful in two fronts. First, it proved that even with step-by-step directions written down in front of us, man will choose sin. Man will choose sin because it's easier and it's more self-serving, so they will choose sin. That's the first thing. Second thing, it explained how great the price is for righteousness. It explained those two things to us. And when you read throughout the law and you see all the animals being sacrificed and all the different things that, you know, how many people have read through the Old Testament, you know, through Leviticus, Genesis? How many people have read back through that? You need to sometime. And it's unbelievable all the things that they had to do. And when you're reading through it, you're thinking, man, this is a bloodbath. What is going on back here? Well, the law teaches us that sin brings death, okay? Sin brings death, and death, literally translated, means separation. You know, it can happen one of two ways. You can have a physical death where you are separated from the living, or you can have the spiritual death, which means you are separated from God, and both are realities or come into reality the moment that someone sins, and we're all sinful. Ezekiel says uh, in 1820, it says, the person who sins will what? Will die. That's pretty simple. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. That means that because your father did something wrong, God's not holding that against you, right? Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So the law taught us that sin brings death. It's like in the New Testament when it says the wages of sin is death. It's just agreeing with what the Old Testament taught us, right? Then the law taught us something else. The law taught us that, that the only life-giving force in this world is blood, right? Because, hey, you can live without water, you can live without food, can't live without blood. I think everybody's on the same page on that one, right? Leviticus 17.11 kind of pulls this all together. It says, for the life of the flesh is in what? The blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So basically what the Old Testament taught us was death brings sin, and the only thing that can cover death and sin is the blood which represents life. So they would sacrifice the best they had so that they could take the blood from that sacrifice and cover the death that came from their sin. Why did they choose animals? Because they couldn't find a sinless person. Right? Animals were sinless. Why? Because they're not humans. They are not held to the same requirement. Right? I have some dogs, and I wonder about this sin thing, if they can sin or not. But, 
They cannot sin. So they are the closest thing to perfect that we had. And how's that make you feel? How's that make you feel? We need something that's close to perfect. Well, skip humanity and start looking at animals. That's where we were. So they would take the best animal they had and they would sacrifice it to cover the fact that sin had brought death to them. And it would be accepted by God as a covering. But here was the problem. The problem was that blood was not eternal because those animals would have died. It may have been the purest thing we had, but it was not eternal. So since the blood was not eternal, the redemption was not eternal. So every year they had to come back and butcher and slaughter more animals. It was just a bloodbath back there because there was no such thing as eternal blood. So the law revealed that man had a dilemma, and that dilemma was we needed an eternal blood sacrifice. See how the law is setting us up for Jesus? See, the garden tells us we're never going to be sinless, even if there's only one thing we can do wrong. The law says we won't be sinless, even if what we're supposed to do is written down. We'll ignore it. When the, the, the law taught us that sin brings death, and the law taught us that the only thing that can atone for sin is blood, right? And the law taught us that this system is going to take forever and is going to be just driving everyone crazy because there's no... Uh, blood isn't eternal, and so every time they do it, they know they're going to have to do it again. So this is what the law taught us. So what we needed, as the law taught us, was we needed some way to have blood sacrificed that was eternal, right? And that happened in the person of Jesus, all God and all man. When, when Jesus was born, the eternality of God entered the blood of man. So now we had, walking around, someone who could shed their blood for the remission of sins, someone who was perfect and sinless and eternal, and this was in the person of Jesus Christ. So now do you see how the garden and the law set us up perfectly for Jesus? It didn't fail. It set us up for Jesus. Okay, so let's take a look at this, how this played out. Okay, we're going to take a look at this through using John chapter 3. It's one of the easiest ways. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now there was a a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Does that seem random? He didn't ask that yet, did he? That's, that's not what happened. I mean, he was a Jewish leader, right? Nicodemus was a Jewish leader, and unlike the other Jewish leaders, he was actually interested in what Jesus was saying. He saw some truth in what Jesus was saying. But he also knew that if any of the Jews saw him with Jesus, they would consider him being disloyal to Israel, and he probably would have been imprisoned or at the bare minimum lost his position on the council. So he comes to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness, right? And he addresses Jesus with respect, and that's all he had done up to this point. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. It was a great sign of respect to call someone that. He calls him rabbi, and then he says, and we know that you have to be from God. Because nobody can do the things you do unless they're from God. So he gives him, you know, this respectful greeting, and then he compliments him saying he knows he's from God. And right in the middle of it, Jesus just blurts something out that had to set him back on his heels. He says, uh-huh, no man can go to heaven unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is going, What? I didn't even ask that yet. Right? This had to set Nicodemus back on his heels. Notice Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom. What that means is only the people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah will enter or see the kingdom. So this is talking just about salvation. right? 
So Nicodemus is kind of put back on his heels for two reasons. First of all, Jesus answered a question he hadn't yet asked. He was still in the buttering up phase. Remember when you were a kid and you wanted something from your parents? There's a buttering up phase if you do it correctly, right? Where you, you, know, you do a couple things they've been asking you to do for a while and tell them how good their outfit looks or something, right? Or tell them how important they are to you. Then you hit them up, right? This is what Nicodemus was doing. He was, you know, softening them up here. And then Jesus just says, you have to be born again. Right. So, I mean, he answered his question before he, before he asked it. And the second thing that kind of set him back on his heels was this phrase born again. He'd never heard that before. As a matter of fact, the first time we hear it in the scripture is John chapter three. Now, you wouldn't think this would still be a stumbling block, but there's still people today who don't get this. I've had people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm just not that born again type. I literally had somebody tell me that one time. I'm like, hmm what would the other type be? <laughs> you know, I'm a little confused. You know, I've literally had people tell me, I'm a Christian, just not the born-again type. So this born-again thing, I mean, literally kind of sets him back on his heels. He'd never really heard about this, right? And, and it confused him, so he keeps asking questions. John 3, 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Okay, Nicodemus obviously needed some clarity because he thought, you know, born again was literal. He was confused about what that meant. He said, are you talking about a literal, physical rebirth? I can just hear his voice because he had to be grossed out with the thoughts that were probably running through his mind. You know, this really set him back on his heels. And then Jesus explains it. And I love how he explains this. And this is such an important section of Scripture. John 3, 5, and 6, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Of what now? Water, water and the Spirit. That's going to be really important. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That means be saved, regenerated, whatever. Right? And it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus explained that that. In order for someone to go to heaven, they had to be born again, which meant they had to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, a lot of people will look at where it says water, and they immediately think it means what? Baptism. Baptism. It does not mean that. It doesn't mean that, and he'll clarify that, and I'll look at that here in a little bit in verse 6. That's not what he means. The topic here, the context was normal birth versus spiritual rebirth. He says, so a man has to be born two ways, is what he's saying. One by water. Now, if you've had anything to do with childbirth in your life, you get the water thing. Am I right? Does anybody need me to explain what water and childbirth have to do with each other? Okay, no, Kevin, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Kevin's like, I slept through the whole thing, didn't see it, enlighten me. No, no. I mean, he's, first he's saying you have to be born by the water. That means you have to be physically born first. That makes sense, right? And you get it, all right? Then you have to be born of the Spirit, capital S. You have to be born of the Spirit. This is talking about being born again, meaning believing in Jesus Christ for your eternal life. Okay, so he's saying you have to be born once physically, and then you have to be reborn when you believe or trust in me as the Messiah. And then he clarifies that a little bit. In verse 6, he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So he's saying there's two births here, and it's really simple. There's the birth of flesh, that which is born of flesh is flesh, the one that comes by water. And then there's the birth of the spirit, 
what comes from the Holy Spirit. And here's the easiest way I can describe this to you. Okay, when someone, when someone gets forgiven of their sin, when someone trusts Jesus Christ for their eternal life, you get a clean slate. I mean a clean slate. Literally, the moment you believe, no matter what you've ever done in your life, it is forgiven. And the cool thing is, is what you're ever going to do is forgiven too. That's going to be another message, right? But the moment you believe you have a completely clean slate, you are starting over. There is only one other point in your life when you have no history and all future, and that is when you are born. When you are born, you have no past and all future. When you are born again, everything you've ever done has been forgiven. All you have is what's coming in the future because God has forgiven your past. So you see why he says born again? Because just like in your physical birth, born by water, you were all future and no past. Now that you believed, you are all future and no past because I've forgiven all your sins. You are born again. Isn't that awesome? That's how that works. Now, the Apostle Paul discussed this in his letter to the Corinthians, and, and, and I, I love, love, love the way that he put this. Okay? 2 Corinthians five seventeen. he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature, the old things passed away, behold, new things have come. That was Paul explaining that process. He's saying, hey, listen, if you believed, you're like a baby. And, and that illustration is used throughout the scripture, right? I, I could have spent a lot of time on that, but you're just going to have to go look it up. But it is used throughout the scripture a lot. This was Paul's way. So now that you've heard that, let's take a look at this. What are the requirements of being born again? What are the requirements for having eternal life? Okay, because religion, ignorance, and self-righteousness complicate all these requirements. Okay, and here's the thing. Who do you think is behind trying to confuse people about how to become a believer? I mean, that's the enemy, right? God doesn't want you to be confused. He didn't send his son to die so that you would have to figure out a great mystery like, a, you, know, you know, like you're doing a, you know, a treasure hunt. That's not what he wanted. He didn't send his son to die to give you riddles. He sent his son to die so that whoever believed would have eternal life. He wants you in heaven. His son paid the way. That's why he wanted the process to be simple. But I'm not kidding you. Depending on what religion you talk to, you'll hear 10 different things, and it drives me nuts. Some people say you have to speak in tongues before you can go to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that. Some people do. Some people believe you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Some people believe you have to go to special classes. I mean, there's so many. Talk to a different religion. There's, they'll have a different explanation for that. And I'm not kidding you. I've heard some creative ones. right? I, I, there's one religion who teaches that if you live sinless as long as you were sinful, you can go to heaven. I would be doomed. Think about that. right? There's religions that teach you have to make penance and make up for everything you've ever done wrong. How many people want to do that? Right? So whenever something seems confusing to me, whenever religion or a church or a Christian or some self-righteous person, those churchy people, you know, whenever they confuse you, the easiest way to get clarity is to read the words of Jesus. Okay, that's the red letters. You know what I'm talking about? Go see what Jesus had to say about it. Because I don't know about you, I trust him more than I would anybody else. What do you think? So here's what Jesus had to say about this topic. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal. Eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is what? 
not judge. But he who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, a lot of people say, see, it says obey. Listen, that's because it didn't translate well from the Greek. When it says, uh, he, but he who does not obey it, it refers back to believe, but he who does not believe. Okay? Uh, let's see, John 5, 24. Where did I leave off? Yeah, John 5, 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my voice and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal, Eternal life and does not what? And does not come into judgment, right? But is passed out of death into life. John six forty. Jesus said, "For this is the will of my Father, that all who behold the Son and believe in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day." So, if you look at every exchange, and that's just some. And the reason I, I was I was giving you most of these exchanges from John is the Gospel of John is the only gospel that was designed to teach you to believe. All right, it tells us that these things were written so that people may believe, is what it's telling us in a nutshell, in John. So that book was written to teach you how to believe, unlike the other three Gospels. The focus was how to believe here. So if you look at every exchange between man and God, between man and Jesus, what, what is transferred at this moment, what's exchanged is the faith of man in the eternal life of God. The moment you believe, you have eternal life. Not conditional life, eternal life. The moment you believe, you get that. Okay, every time he who believes has eternal life, he who believes has eternal life. There is no mention of good works. There is no mention of rule following. There's no mention of penance. There's no mention of baptism. You know what's mentioned? If you believe, you will have eternal life. The word belief in the Greek means to be convinced of. When you are convinced that Jesus is your Messiah, that what he did was enough, you will have eternal life. That is exactly what is required for salvation. And here's the verse, I, I always throw this in here, because Paul, once again, who's, Paul's one, arguably one of the most important, if not the most important, New Testament figure other than Jesus. And he does an amazing job of explaining salvation to a bunch of self-righteous people. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the verse that actually convinced me to believe. Starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is the Greek word charis. It means that unmerited favor, something you cannot deserve. So, okay, okay, so for by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that what? Not, Not of yourselves. So, let's break that down. You've been saved by grace through faith. Not by you. Right? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of what? Works. Of works. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we would. That's what self-righteous people do. I'm better than you. That's why I'm going to heaven, right? Listen, he's saying, none of you deserve it. It was a gift given to you from God. You can't earn it. He gave it to you because you believed in his son, because he loves you and he wants you with him. You couldn't do it on your own. He knew that. This is what he's saying in these passages. These passages really spoke to me, right? So the simple fact is you're not saved by works. You're not kept by works. You're saved the moment you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the moment you believe that what he did was enough to guarantee your eternal life. Now, I have to go over this last thing very quickly, which is the security of a believer. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because I, there's just nothing to argue. Okay, there's a lot of people that believe that once you become a believer, if you make a mistake, you're going to go to hell again. Or if you make enough mistakes, you're going to go to hell again. 
Or if you get mad at God, you can give it back. Okay, I'm not even going to go into all that. Okay, but in all these verses, there's two things, two important truths that you see here. The first is that salvation is undeniably by faith alone in Christ alone. Don't you think that was pretty obvious? Was that obvious? Okay, right? The second thing is, is by faith alone in Christ alone, you get eternal life. Now, in the Greek, the word eternal means, it means eternal. I mean, I wish I could give you some huge diatribe about what, it it means eternal. Okay, I don't think Jesus failed grammar and composition. What do you think? All right, he's the son of God, all God and all man. And he said, the moment you believe, I give you eternal life, not conditional life. If you have to do something to maintain your salvation, then Jesus lied because he said, when you believe, you get eternal life. That means believe and my, my exchange with you is life without an end. Okay, that's what it means. So just so you understand this, and I'm probably going to take a lot of people off, hopefully not here, but I probably will. The moment someone believes you have eternal life, you will remain eternally saved. No one can lose it. No one can give it back. And no one can have it taken from them. If they could, it wouldn't be eternal, and Jesus is lying. Okay? Anybody want to say Jesus is a liar? Because let me know so I can get out the building so when the lightning hits, I'm not standing by you. All right? So to believe anything less is not only to call him a liar, it's also arrogant. And I don't think we think about it like this, but think about it. You're saying that, yeah, it was awesome that God, you know, God set us up with the garden and showed us we couldn't, you know, we would choose sin if there's only one thing to do. It's awesome that the law proved that, you know, we wouldn't do the right thing even if it was written down for us and that we needed blood to cover our sin. That's awesome. And Jesus came, yeah, and died and suffered on the cross and rose and defeated death, hell, and the grave. That's all awesome, and I believed. But none of that works unless I'm good enough. Do you ever think about that? You put yourself equal to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, when you say that what they did was not enough, it requires you to be complete. You ever think about that? Puts a little little different light on it, doesn't it? I couldn't get up here in the pulpit and say, come on, whoever believes will have eternal life if I believe that, because I'd be a liar. It wouldn't be eternal life. I would have to get up and say, come to Jesus, and man, I hope you're good enough to keep it. Because if you slip, Even when you're 78 on your deathbed, you are back in hell, my friend. Can you imagine? That's not a very powerful message to share, is it? When you say that you have to add anything other than the faith alone and Christ alone to go to heaven, it's a lie and it's arrogant. You're saying, thanks, Jesus, for starting me. I got this. I'll finish it. So you know what should happen when you get to heaven? Everybody should say, great job, Chris. Jesus got you started, but if you weren't a good finisher, we were going to be in trouble. You see what I mean? You have eternal life. Praise God, you don't have to be a finisher. Now, does that mean that there are no consequences for sin? Absolutely not. There are serious consequences for sin, and there are serious accountabilities that we have to discuss, but we will discuss them next week. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close. If you would, just bow your heads. If this is your first time here, we always give an invitation. And the reason is, I believe in the power of the Word of God. I don't believe it's the speaker that has power. I don't believe it's the building. I believe that the word of God is powerful. And it knows how to speak to you right where you are. 
And whenever, whenever you need the hand of God touching you, the word of God will bring that hand to you. And just in case God has spoke to someone today, I always, I always ask this. If there's someone here that's not sure where they stand, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to chase you down. I'm not going to email you. I'm not going to send my deacons after you. I just want to pray for you. If you're not sure where you stand and you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'm not going to point you out, but I've been there. Bless those people. If you're listening online, watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But it takes that first step of realizing this is something I can't do on my own. Now, if we're believers, gosh, I hope we get this message right when we share it with people. I want to pray that we are clear in delivering that message and that we are clear in how our lives reflect the grace of God to other people so that they would accept this. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. Every time I read about the plan of salvation that you put in motion, that you completed, I'm so thankful and I'm so amazed. We would have never made it to heaven if it wasn't for your son, Jesus. Jesus, had you not willingly died on that cross and gave us the opportunity to have eternal life through faith in you, we would have all been doomed. I thank you that you love us, not because we're so amazing, but despite the fact that we're so sinful. I thank you, Lord, that it doesn't matter who we were or who we are, the moment we believe, we're one of yours. And for someone here who doesn't know you, I just pray that whatever's holding them back, whatever's hindering them, whatever's clouding the topic, just remove it and let them trust in your words that if they believe that what you did was enough, they can have eternal life. If they make that decision, I just pray they reach out to us. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, if it's so easy to forget why we're here. We've not just been given a gift of eternal life. We've been given the ability to share that gift with others. Please bless us to live lives that draw others to you and let us have a clear message of how gracious this gift really is. We just pray that you would go with us as we leave here, keep us safe, let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.